Okay, last video we talked about the genealogy of Jesus and the Annunciation and how those how we fit those into Jesus's Jewish world. So if you want to see that video, I recommend looking watching that first. But with this video, let's uh, let's dive in to the birth story of Jesus, and we'll pull out a few points to help us understand the text uh, better and also the con the Jewish context of the story. First, let's look at the practical uh, the practical setting of Jesus's birth. I ask my students, what's the typical story of Jesus's birth in, that we hear in movies and plays? Especially, obviously, during the holiday season, Christmas season, there's lots of plays, lots of movies. What's the typical story of Jesus's birth? And then a lot of them say, well, he, they, they come to Bethlehem when Mary is like nine months pregnant, right? On the verge of having uh, giving birth. And they're traveling alone. Mary and Joseph are traveling alone. They're traveling at night and they get to Bethlehem right in the nick of time. Mary's ready to have a baby, but all the inns, they said, the inns are all full because people are crowded there, and uh, there's no room. So they send them over to a stable, a nice wooden stable, and there's animals there, and they, you know, they're, they have Jesus is born in those humble beginnings. Okay, so that's typically what we hear about, but most of those elements that we read and that we, that we see in movie depictions are not in the Gospels. Okay, so let's go through this. The first question is, would Joseph and Mary travel alone from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem? This is a day or two's journey, a couple days takes to, to get down from, from north all the way down through. Uh, they might not have gone down through Samaria. They might have gone over to the Jordan Valley, followed the Jordan River all the way down, and then turned west to go to Jerusalem, and then another five miles to Bethlehem. So it takes a long time, a couple days, two or three or four days. Would they have traveled alone. These are young, vulnerable people because Mary is very, she's pregnant and they're walking to Bethlehem. They, the answer is that they would not have been walking alone. They would have gone in a caravan. They would have traveled with people to get protection. And so they would have been with, with lots of people. Okay, that's number one. Another question we want to consider is that wouldn't Mary arrive in Bethlehem long before the arrival of Jesus? It seems like they would prepare for this trip knowing that she's pregnant and then they would ride, they would go there travel there in enough time to, to get settled in? The answer is yes, they would have. And in Luke 2, here is what we read in verse 6. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. So it shows us that she was already there. While they were there, now came the time for her to deliver her child. It doesn't seem that she showed up the very night on the verge of giving birth, like our tradition says. Okay, so that's that, that point. Now, what about the, the inn? If... Mary and Joseph were traveling with a caravan, and they gave themselves enough time to get settled in, then what do we make of the verse that says there, are, there was no room for them in the inn? The Greek word for inn, right there in Luke 2, is kataluma. That, a better translation of the word kataluma is upper room or a, or a guest room. Luke uses a different word for an inn or a hostel or like a hotel, what we would think of, of those types of things. That, and that Greek word is pandokion. He does use such a word, that word pandokion, in, let's see, where is it? It's in the, the Good Samaritan story where the Good Samaritan takes the guy who's been beaten, takes him to an inn or a pandokion. With this word kataluma, there was no room for them in the kataluma. It, it means an upper room or a guest room. This is the same word that is referred to in the Last Supper. The room of the Last Supper is they rented out a cataluma or bought a, bought a guest room or something to, to have their last moments together before Jesus goes to Gethsemane. Okay, so what, is this, what does this all mean? 
Basically, what it shows is that what's probably happening is that when Jesus and Mary come to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, there's a house. They have they have access to a house. They know people, and even in Matthew, he uses the word the, the word oikos, a home. When the Magi show up, there's a home there. The story that we get is most likely that, that Mary and Joseph, the actual story is that Mary and Joseph travel with the caravan to Bethlehem. They give themselves enough time to get settled in. There's no room for them in a guest room. What this probably is, is the home that they are staying in. The uh, well, I'll have another YouTube video, a later video on housing styles and what kind of houses people lived in. But basically, a lot of people, especially in Bethlehem, built their homes over a cave. Sometimes like you'd have a slope in the hill and you have a cave in the back of the house. They'd build their home over that and they would keep their animals back there and the food, animal, the, the feeding trough, which is what we're calling a manger. They would keep that on the bottom level in the back of the house. And, and so there's probably no room in the Cataluma, in the rooms on the second floor. Usually houses had two floors. They had one floor on the bottom with a, a roof and then another floor on top and then a flat roofed home. And so people would stay up on the, the second floor in a one or two bedroom, one or two roomed house. So if it's crowded and there's lots of family members and or friends and the time comes for Mary to give birth, the host or the, the person, the head of the household probably clears out the, the bottom part, clears out the animals, and allows Mary and Joseph to go back into the, a cave in the back of the house to have to deliver Jesus. Now, early Christian tradition does place the birth of Jesus in a cave. In fact, when Constantine's mother, this is the fourth century, Constantine, emperor of Rome, he becomes a Christian, and he, his mother, Helena, goes to uh, Palestine, and what she, she travels around, and she tries to locate the, the places associated with Jesus's life. So she travels to Bethlehem and she travels all around and she gets, uh, she learns from the local people where these sites are, are located. And she traces, and the, and the local tradition is that Jesus was born at a certain place in Bethlehem in a cave. So it kind of fits with what we know about the lifestyle and the housing styles of Jesus's day. Okay, so that's kind of the practical setting of Jesus's birth. And there's more information on this elsewhere. And I'll provide a link uh, at the end of this video where, where you can get more information. So what do we do? Let's move to the, the Magi, the, the wise men. Only in Matthew do the Magi, and we know them as wise men, but basically the, the, the word, the Greek word means magician. You know, Magi or Magus means magician or astrologer. These three Magi come with gold, frankincense, and myrrh to celebrate Jesus's birth. Now, where do these elements come from? Is this historical or is, these, is this pulled in from the Hebrew Bible? These are the questions that my students ask all the time. And again, I'll answer the, I'll, I'll talk about this in a, in a later video, but we're not so concerned with historicity, but we want to imagine again, how these elements are understood by Jews who are reading or, and or hearing the Jesus' story. In the Gospel of Matthew, this is the, the only gospel that contains these elements. No other gospel contains the Magi, the wise men, and no other gospel mentions anything about gold, frankincense, or myrrh. When we go to the Hebrew Bible, and the author of Matthew is very liberal in his use of elements from the Hebrew Bible, he's constantly trying to, to size up Jesus in relation to elements and to people and themes of the Hebrew Bible. When we go to the Hebrew Bible, we see very uh, clearly what the author of Matthew is trying to accomplish. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 60, it says that the, the nations of the earth will flee their darkness and come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So he's talking to Israel, that the nations of the earth, earth will flee and come to Israel and the kings and that the kings would come 
and to the brightness of Israel. Okay. When they when these kings come, they will bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim and praise of the, and the, proclaim the praise of the Lord. So right there in Matthew is trying to author, the author of Matthew is trying to reach back and to highlight prophecies that will make the story much more powerful. Trying to link Jesus with these prophecies. Okay, people of the Gentile uh, or uh, the nations will come with gold and frankincense and they will praise the Lord. We also see in First Kings chapter ten that the queen of Sheba brings spices and gold to King Solomon. Now, why is this important? Because remember that the Gospel of Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the son of David. He constantly comes back to the theme that Jesus is the son of David. Notice here that the queen of Sheba brings spices and gold to King Solomon. And King Solomon is a son of David. He's a literal son of David. And this is 1 Kings 10. Also in Psalm 72, this psalm anticipates that, quote, the kings of Sheba will bring gifts and fall down before Solomon with their gold. Again, royalty from outside of Israel will come, worship, and fall down, and praise the Israelite king. So if you start to think of why Matthew wants to, the author of Matthew wants to highlight these stories. Also, Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is written about a victorious king whose robes are all fragrant with myrrh. Okay, so in these stories, again, gold, frankincense, myrrh. It's in relation to an Israelite king, and the people from outside of Israel, the royalty from other nations will come praise Israel. So you can see why Matthew has people, magi, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh and praising Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's the magi. Now, the question is, does Luke have magi? Well, we already said that the magi are only in Matthew. But why would Luke not have the magi? Well, here's a few thoughts. So if you remember from the last video on uh, about Luke's genealogy, is that Luke, the author of Luke has no long line of kings that Jesus comes from. That, that's not his lineage. He does not descend through David's son Solomon, but through David's son Nathan. And what it's, the author of Luke seems to be doing is situating Jesus within a prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 1, that talks about the stump of Jesse, right? So Jesus is going to bypass the kingship lineage of Judah that went awry, that was, that the, there was, these kings were wicked, as we read all about in, in first and second kings. And instead, they're going to trace, the author of Luke is going to trace the Messiah back to the stump of Jesse, showing that God would restore Israel through a new branch of David through Jesus. So that's what Luke's trying to do. So it makes sense that he would not have royalty or magi in the story because they're royalty and he wants to link Jesus with shepherds, with, you know, normal human beings. Okay, but it's not only that, but it seems that the author of Luke doesn't like magi. So why, why do we think that? Well, in Acts 8, and the author of Acts also wrote the, author, uh, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. In Acts 8, Simon, we read about a Simon Magus or Magus or Simon the Magician. And we read about him very negatively in verses uh, 9 through 11. Also in Philo, if we get uh, the, the Jewish context of, of the word magi and how other authors are, are using this, Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, calls Balaam. This, if you remember, this guy is from Numbers 24, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But basically, this person, Balaam, or Balaam as we say in English, is called a, Philo, Philo calls him a magus. He's a non-Israelite figure known for his gift of prophecy and for the ability to curse people in Numbers in the Numbers 22 through Numbers 24. And Philo says that he is celebrated for his skill in divination, dwelling in Mesopotamia, right, from the east, who was initiated in every branch of the soothsayer's art. Not a favorable term, magus, or where we get wise men. Balaam conspired against Israel in the days of Moses, 
And because of that, he's defamed by the New Testament authors. So Second Peter, in Jude, and the book of Revelation, and I'll put these, up, these uh, references up on the screen here, all of these authors speak about Balaam in a very negative way. This is the context of people coming from the East who are called magicians or astrologers. They're seen with suspicion. It seems that the author of Luke, especially considering Acts 8, he doesn't like magi. So he's not going to include them, especially in the story of Jesus. But what the author of Luke does try to do is he uses angels who come to shepherds, and he shows that actually shepherds are also associated with the Messiah, as we will discuss in a later video on the Messiah. So here is Luke 2, verse 11. He was born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah. We have Matthew and Luke, these Gospels, that are, are interested and concerned with showing that Jesus is the Messiah, but they go about it in different ways. The author of Matthew highlights royalty, and he's focused on certain prophecies, where the author of Luke is not concerned with royalty, but he's using other prophecies. Isaiah 11, and he wants to highlight shepherds and more of a more humble beginning for Jesus. So this is why there's no Magi in Luke. Now, I will mention real briefly is that notice if you go to the Gospel of Luke and you read the first couple of verses, you will notice that Luke seems to be aware of the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. It doesn't say that he's aware of those particular Gospels, but it says that he is aware. He's talking to, he's writing to a person named Theophilus, and he says that the Jesus story has been written about by other people. Because Mark and Matthew were so widespread, at least later, they seem to be very widespread, it's probably those Gospels that he's talking about, at least maybe one or two of those. It's, it's unlikely that he's talking about some other lost Gospel, but he's aware of these mainstream uh, widespread Gospels, or popular, however widespread they were, and he says in there that he's, he's not pleased with them. He tells Theophilus that he is trying to write a new Gospel or a new story of Jesus so that Theophilus will understand the truth. And if we understand that context, that, that issue, we might, it might help us to, that when we're reading Luke and we're reading Matthew and Luke together, when Luke pulls, when he leaves elements out of Matthew, he leaves out the Magi and these other elements, it might be that he doesn't like those elements. He doesn't agree with it. And so with that context, we, we might, we leave the door open for these stories to be historical, but also we leave the door open for these stories to be embellished or you know, or the author of Matthew is trying to use the Hebrew Bible. He's using it liberally to tell Jesus a story. And Luke is saying, no, I'm not so sure about that. I want to just show that you know, this is the actual story, not, not what the other people have done. Okay, so we, we want to keep that in mind. The, the next element is the star. How do we contextualize the star in Jesus's birth narrative? Well, we already referred to this guy from this, this non-Israelite, Balaam, this guy, Balaam, in Numbers 24. So if you guys remember the story, here's a guy who... It is hired, basically paid, by the king of Moab to go curse the Israelites. So the Israelites, with Moses coming into the, the land of Canaan, they're in the region, and the, the, the king of Moab sees them, and so he says, okay, I want you, Balaam, to use your skill at cursing and, and prophesying of, of, of bad things to these people, go and do your thing. So then he gets on his donkey, he's going to where he's going to curse them, and the donkey starts talking and giving him fits, and we all know that story. But in that, in Numbers 24, we read that when Balaam finally speaks about Israel, he doesn't curse them, but he praises them and blesses them. And there's a, pro, there's a little prophecy in there in Numbers 24, verse 2, that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, who shall rule. That little prophecy about a star coming out of Jacob, who shall rule, all of Israel, 
is, is obscure, and the later Jewish authors at the time of Jesus tell us that this is a little bit of, they know about this prophecy, and it's a little bit ambiguous. So Philo, for example, refers to Balaam uh, as one who came from Mesopotamia, from the east, as a magus, a magi. And so what we have is at least two first century authors, the author of Matthew and Philo, who are linking the Messiah star passage in Numbers with magi from the east. We also have Josephus. During the 60s, in the Jewish-Roman War, Josephus tells about a false prophet during this war who claimed that the Jews would receive a miraculous sign of deliverance. He uses those terms, deliverance. He says, when this false prophet shows up and says, I'm going to deliver Israel, he says that people believe that a star stood over Jerusalem, stood over the city of Jerusalem. And there was a lot of chatter and a lot of rumors that there's this false prophet who just said that now there's a star. that We don't know what that star was, but they, they, they believed it. Josephus says, what more than all else incited these Jews to the war was an ambiguous prophecy. He's probably referring to Numbers 24. There's this ambiguous prophecy, likewise found in their sacred scriptures, to the effect that at that time, in the Messianic age, one from their country would become the ruler of the world. This they understood to mean someone of their own race, and many of their wise men went astray in their interpretation of it. Josephus, there's a few things going on here. Number one, Josephus confirmed the belief among many Jews in the traditions of stars signaling deliverance by a Messiah who would govern the whole earth. But also, Josephus shows that this prophecy is not well understood. It's a vague, ambiguous prophecy, and he was upset to see that it, so many people were led astray and they became zealous, and they got killed by Rome because of it. And he was really upset years later when he was writing about this. So is there a star in Luke? Well, there's no star. Or is there? Some people believe that the star is an angel or the Messiah himself. The Damascus document in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is a document that within it talks about the, the Numbers 24 prophecy of Balaam, saying that a star will come out of Jacob. But in that document, they interpret, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, interpret the star in Numbers 24 as being a messianic figure, a person who is called the interpreter of the law, also in the Testament of Levi. This is a second century BCE text. This, post, this predates Jesus. It says that the star of Balaam's prophecy will be an angelic figure like a king who will shine forth like the sun, and there shall be peace in all the earth. When this angel appears, the heavens will be opened, and the earth shall be glad, the clouds will be filled with joy, and the angels of glory of the Lord's presence will be made glad by him. Now notice the similarities with Luke 2. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them. As I've highlighted here on the screen, all the, the, the words in yellow that are similar to the Testament of Levi. They brought good news of great joy. There will be a sign for you. There, will be, there was an angel with a multitude of heavenly hosts, like in the Testament of Levi, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. In the Testament of Levi, there's a king who will shine forth like the sun. Here's another idea that there's a the star is an actual person. And so there are some traditions that, a, that the star in Balaam's prophecy is a, as an actual figure. And the later rabbis or people at Qumran, the Dead Sea, they, they link this prophecy with an actual person, with the Messiah. <laughs>